good morning again. It's a pleasure to be with you. Let me pray for us because what we're going to deal with here are a couple of problems. They're important ones. We'll ask for some help. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who works in us and gives honour and glory and empowers your great gospel. Help me now to speak well and for us to understand the problems that are here and how they're solved. And we ask for these things in your name. Amen. Now, the problem of Thessalonians, of course, is a delightful one, and that is that um, it's, it's a very raw letter written soon after Paul had been with the Thessalonian church. And it's delightful because he'd been there for less than a month, three Sundays teaching, it said, and he'd come there in difficult circumstances. He still had bruises and scars and maybe uh, scabs from the way he'd been mistreated immediately beforehand uh, in Philippi. So he's, he's come, a man who might have been very broken, but on the contrary came, bruised and battered but full of confidence in the gospel because he'd seen the Philippian jailer converted in the most difficult circumstances and he'd actually been escorted out of Philippi by the Roman authorities because he insisted... He insisted on the protection of his, of his Roman citizenship, which meant he insisted on the due process of law. So even in the wildness of how he was being treated and the gospel was spreading, he insisted that there were to be proper processes. And uh, so when he arrives with the Thessalonians, the other great news is there's a synagogue there, a meeting of Jewish people because there hadn't been at Philippi and it was, it was part of his plan to go to the synagogue first for theological reasons, uh, that is, Jews first, but also because it's a really smart, tactical, strategic way of getting on with business. Preach to the people who know the gospel and then pick up from there. Uh, the other thing that's delightful is uh, we're told both in, in the Thessalonian church and also in the Berean church that when people came to faith there were not a few prominent women. Uh, praise God for prominent women. And let us consider whether the gospel has come powerfully into a society or a collection of people if it lacks prominent women. Uh, as a man who's married to a woman and has three daughters, but also who strictly understands that uh, this is highlighted in the gospel to us. Prominent women uh, became members of the church and continued, one assumes, to be prominent women. So here's, here's the delightful part, but the problem is uh, Paul, had, Paul was pursued by the Judaizers, the, the Jews, and he'd been chased out of Thessalonica. Uh, unlike Philippi, he hadn't been beaten and brutalised, but he'd been chased out. And he got to Berea, where things went wonderfully with the church there, and then he was chased out again. So in a very short period of time... The Thessalonian people have heard the gospel. It's been so powerfully received that Paul has taught them in, with such urgency that he teaches and works at the same time to sustain it. He's, he's urgent in his business. Um, and he says, we work night and day. We really applied ourselves to the task of bringing the gospel to you. But it was only three weeks, and then he's gone. He says that when he spoke to them, he talked to them about the suffering that comes to Jesus, 
uh, when it says in Acts when he preached, he preached about the suffering of Christ and he taught them about suffering and he taught them about persecution. But then after three weeks, he's gone and there's this, mm, this imposing problem and the problem is, uh, Paul, where are you in our suffering? And apparently, if, if you read the Thessalonian letter, apparently what people were saying was, yeah, God, yeah, you, you say that God loves you. But look, we Jews are ascendant. Paul's gone. We've got the power. You people, you, where is he? he? He says he loves you, but where is he? And the truth was he was living it up in Athens, having a hoot of a time, not being persecuted, but doing what he loved best, which was arguing all the time. Not arguing as in being belligerent, but, but philosophy. And I see you have many idols. Let me talk to you about idols. He was a highly educated man. He was in his zone and he wasn't being beaten up or in prison. And so they're saying, look, he's, he's swanning around down there and you're doing the hard work. Now, that, now, surely GT has talked about this and you've thought about it. And he, so here's the urgency of the letter and the delight of the letter is that Paul's saying, we long to be with you, long to be with you, and explains why he is where he is and what he's most worried about not faithless worry, but Christian concerted worry. That is, the worry of trying to get back to help them, the worry of praying for them, the worry of ensuring that the gospel has been solid in them and, and fruitful. He's worrying about their faith standing firm, and that's what he addresses for them. Uh, he, taught, he reminds them about what had happened, why he's not there. So now we come to the problem. That's the general problem. Here's the specific problem. He says, we couldn't come because Satan stopped us. And I'm terrified that Satan, that the tempter will tempt you. Uh, which is quite shocking, isn't it? Don't you think? In, in a society that we live in, if you talk about Satan as a person, uh, you'll get rolled eyeballs at best. <laughs> rolled eyeballs at best. And they will think you are fluky. There's something wrong with you. You don't fit in our scientific society. Um, but, but he says in verse 18 and B, uh, we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. Um, you guys ever played that whack-a-shark game or whack-a-mole where you stand with your bit of, bit of stick and the moles jump up and you whack them? And what Paul's saying is I kept jumping up and Satan kept whacking me down. I couldn't get to you. I physically wanted to come to you and I couldn't get there. That, that's, a, that's a challenging thing, isn't it? But, but, he, but think, think about this first. Uh, this letter is addressed, addressed to the Christians in Thessalonica. Some of them were Jews. Some of them were Gentiles, that is, non-Jewish background, non-Jewish non people. And in three weeks, he had taught them about Satan and two of his names, Satan, which is an Old Testament term, that a Gentile would not have known. You understand it, don't you? It's a new idea. It's, a Gentile, uh, it's not a Gentile term, it's an Old Testament term. And the other one is he's got the term the tempter. He calls him the tempter. So at some point in the three weeks, he taught them about how, about the name of Jesus, uh, the name of Satan, sorry, and uh, his function as a tempter, his other name. Now think about that. How many of you would assume that if a person came to faith in the first three weeks, they'd be taught not only about the name of Satan, uh, not only his nature, but his function also in three weeks. It doesn't really happen amongst us, does it? 
And I'm not, I'm not saying how proud I am of that, you know, that, that I've done it, GT will tell you. Uh, we worked together for a long time. I probably didn't teach about Satan very much at all. Why not? Because it's as embarrassing as abortion for Christians. It's as embarrassing as, as other topics like that, where we know if we, if we express anything, not of our own opinion, but by, of what we've received, that we're going to get an eye roll at best. It's really difficult to talk about Satan. Uh, if, you're, if you're wicker, then you'll get some kind of improvement because we like a society having eccentrics, but we don't like Christians. And we don't like Christians talking about things that are fundamental to them. So in a three-week course for new Christians, we're probably not going to talk about Satan and we're probably not going to explain his name, his nature and his function. However, Paul did as a matter of importance, correct? Three weeks, and they understood, so he didn't have to explain when he spoke to them. Um, so, and what he's taught them is that he's the great spiritual enemy who has the capacity to hinder. Now, this is a military term, and it means to cut into a road to make it impassable. That's a good description of hinder, isn't it? You want someone not to be able to come to you, then you go down to Macquarie Pass, or the one we used, I'm not sure what it is, and you just cut it off, it can't come. But Paul said, I want to come, I couldn't get there. I tried again, I couldn't get there. He stopped us. He put obstacles in the way. Now, he doesn't tell us what they are. And quite possibly the Thessalonians may have known. And we don't need to speculate because we know what happened. He was stopped. But he was stopped by Satan. Uh, usually, Satan will work through a human action. Now, I, I don't want to get too weirded about this, but, but some of us here have had experiences that we understood were not hallucinations that were contact with the darkness of evil spirits. True? You don't have to put your hand up for that, but we've had it. And it doesn't happen very often, it's not normalised, but there have been times when we've been in conflict or in difficult situations where something's happened, we thought, strike. There's one from out of the, you know, the normal experience, just as we've had those same wonderful experiences by the Holy Spirit. True? Same thing, where you well, wow, that doesn't happen every day. You wouldn't expect it, you wouldn't demand it of the Holy Spirit, and you certainly don't want it from the evil one. But he, he can do his stuff there, but mostly he does it through uh, the, action, the evil actions of people. Mostly through the evil actions of people. But this is very important. Satan is the name of a person. Satan is not the personification of evil. So, for instance, Stalin is the personification of evil. You want to know what evil's like? Look at that bloke. But Satan is Satan. You want to know who evil is? That's him. You understand the difference? So we're not talking about, when we say Satan acting, we're not saying personified. We're saying, no, no, no Satan's actually acting. He's, he's acting through these people. A person is acting through these people. It's not a vibe uh, like that famous movie, The Castle, it's actually detailed. This is, this is the person who's working in this way. Now, um, I, want you to, I want you to see here that in the whole letter, Paul doesn't talk about Satan very much at all, does he? And that's probably why we don't teach about Satan very much at all. But he does teach about him. And so we C.S. Lewis said there were two equal and opposite errors. That is to see devil behind every rock, and that is to ignore him at all. We're not fixated with him. But as we undertake faith, as we engage with following Jesus Christ, there will be times when we think, hey, I'm trying to do this thing and it's the right thing. 
It is the right thing for the founding pastor of a congregation to get back to his troubled congregation and teach them, correct? It's not a what if, where will I go on holidays? It's, it's urgent that I do this. And, and I'm being opposed and blocked. And what you need to see here is that Paul pushes back. Um, if you're being opposed by Satan, you push back. You don't accept it. You work and you find a solution, which is what he did. Is I couldn't get there. I, Paul, tried again and again, so we sent Timothy. And Timothy did what I couldn't do. Um, how do we know then if it is Satan and it's not just things are difficult, didn't work out the way we wanted or that there is a Satan at all? Acts chapter 16, verses 6 to 7, is really helpful in this regard. This actually speaks about a critical, a critical decision that was made by the early missionaries, the first missionaries, whether to go down into what's now modern-day Turkey. So they've headed up, up north from uh, Jerusalem. Are we going to crack to the right or to the left? And they've planned to the right. That's their plan. It's a good plan. The gospel needs to go to all the earth. There's nothing, that's not a worse plan or, or a better plan. It's a good plan. The gospel goes everywhere, but they were stopped. But in this context, Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. So they're up north. Having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Um, when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia. But the spirit of Jesus would not allow them. How is that different to being opposed by Satan? Well, they were not being stopped from preaching the gospel. If they'd been stopped from preaching the gospel, then you would say, here's at least some opposition to the gospel. Uh, the spirit stopped them. And during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And you see, it's a beautiful process, isn't it? Um, the, the Holy Spirit stopped us. That could be as simple as we were going to catch the train to go and do mission at uh, the Blue Mountains and the, track, the line was closed and so we went down the south coast. We were winners all around, preached the gospel and in the south coast. You see, you wouldn't say that was the opposition of Satan because they're preaching the gospel. Then, if on the train you're having a sleep heading down and you have a vision that says, come on down the coast, come and join us down at Jervis Bay, then you'd, you'd tell the guys, I've had this vision, and they'd say, game on, south coast it is. Not that there was anything wrong with the other alternatives, but game on, south coast it is. We're not being hindered here. We're on the diesel train from... Kiamata Bomo, which you one of the great train trips of the world. <laughs> you see, basically, if it's a closed door with no moral consequence, no gospel consequence, then at worst it's benign, isn't it? It's, it's not. It, 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 at best, it's God's leading. Uh, how do you know God's leading? Well, this is important. Two things. One, the Bible... Uh, teaches, the New Testament teaches that churches have spiritual gifts and that there are people in this church 
who have been gifted by God with spiritual insight. And GT would do well, and the other leaders in the church, and the prominent women especially, would do well to know who are those people in our church who have been gifted with spiritual insight, who are able to say when we look at a situation, you know, uh, you think it through logically and it seems to me that this is the best option to take. They're not saying if it doesn't happen this way we're being hindered by God, by uh, Satan, are they? That's not being said. So it seems best to us to do this. If then you find there's all sorts of angry outrage and people, have, you know, then you might say we're being hindered. We couldn't get there. But the other thing is to, if you practice a thing, you get good at it. If you practice saying, where should we as a church focus our energies in building the gospel? Well, I, I put it to you that the Holy Spirit told me this morning, children would be a good idea. Uh, now, someone with spiritual discernment might say, uh, actually, um, I, think, I think elderly people uh, is where we're going to put our big effort. And you could consider that. I, I don't know how you do that. But the point is, but you would know the difference between that process and being hindered, especially the more you practised it. So you've been saints for a long time, you've experienced this. You pray, give us an opportunity, sometimes these things grow and we realise it's God at work, sometimes these things hinder us. I know in the history of this church, Satan has been at work in various ways and done harm. Those who are older, remember? I was here in 1990-something, I preached a series of three weeks. Who was here? <laughs> An adult. Things have gone wrong here, haven't they? Satan's done some pretty nasty stuff. We've seen that. We don't glory in it and we don't, we're not surprised by it. But those who've had spiritual experience can now say to us, you know, that smells like sulphur. What's happening here in the life of our church, it stinks of Satan. We've got to stop it. And we did learn that, didn't we? We've learnt now. There's things we see now, we say, nah, that stinks. That's got darkness written all over it. And, and so you've got both people who are gifted, but also experience, spiritual experience. Um, now, so, Satan at work will be manifestly evil. It will be sinful. There'll be no fruit of the spirit. So when you see God at work, even in difficult circumstances, it will taste of uh, honeysuckle sweetness, love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. As hard as things may be, as beaten as our backs may be, and I'm not wishing it on anyone from Robertson Church, but as beaten as we may be, it all it tastes of sweetness. Whereas the opposite in Galatians, you can do that for homework, it just stinks. It stinks. It's foul. It's not sour, it's foul. And you go and look at that list. So if you see that down that track, which is what exactly what Paul saw when he was dealing with the Jews, in fact, he says, to the, he says about them, their judgment has come in full. They are fully condemned for what they've done and what they're doing. And he's not saying that as opinion. He's saying because he observes the behaviour. It's all the stuff of the stench of sulphur. Now, the other problem, we could talk about this later. I need to move on. So that's that one. The other problem is chapter 3 and verses 2 and 5. We're not finished yet. Um, and we sent Timothy as our brother 
and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in faith. See, faith, which is belief in Jesus Christ. So that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that you would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. And for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. And I was afraid that in some way the tempter, the person, this is his functional name, that the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. That is, that he would have unseated you, unsettled you from faith, that you'd have fallen off your gospel foundation and that he did it by his agency. He actually did something, influenced in some way. For those of you, uh, this is a kind of, it's, it's a joke, uh, it's a funny um, insight into it. But C.S. Lewis's 1942 book, The Screwtape Letters, is a wonderful, wonderful comedic view into the very serious problem of how you get influenced, how the tempter tempts. And if you haven't read it, do yourself a favour. Put it in someone's Christmas basket or steal it off the internet um, or whatever you need to do. And that's called downloading, isn't it? Or download it or I'm not suggesting you steal anything off the internet. By the way, now, now, so, so, the tempter—not the name Satan, but his ugly function—becomes his name, and that function is to attack faith. And the best way to attack faith is the one that we see here in the whole Thessalonian account. The best way is to introduce doubt. He says he loves me, but since following him, my life has become more difficult. My life before the gospel came was. Yeah, and now it's so much harder. (laughs) I I, I thought that I'd discovered exactly who I am under the heavens, uh, under the gospel of Jesus Christ, under the cross of our Lord. And I felt that my whole life had discovered meaning and now everybody hates me, including my mum. And any time I talk to them about the freedoms of Jesus Christ, they tell me to stop. And they say, we used to like you. What's, what's happened to you? And you say, Jesus has come to my life. Well, pfft. how's that working out for you? Jason, with your bond that you've had to pay and you know, being inspected by the powers that be, and etc. And, and you see, it is unsettling, isn't it? Um, and, and it works the same way. Paul's supposed to love you. Where is he? He's not sticking up for you. He writes nice letters. Now, now what, what you would read in Screwtape Letters is this suggestion. You, you can't live in the world, in this world, without having an understanding of suffering. Either, either you are belligerently blind to the need to deal with it, or you don't have the capacity to deal with it. Sometimes you don't have the capacity. As someone who's suffered from depression, sometimes I'd think about things that were evil and think, oh, I can't bear that thought. I just can't bear that thought. Other times you'll do what we see in our society is, oh, I don't care. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, oh, I, don't, I don't care if uh, women are mistreated by certain other religions, but I really care if a white bloke from the North Shore mistreats a woman. I really care about that. 
Um, now, if I'm buying into your personal politics, I'm reversing out at a thousand miles an hour, but the point remains and is undoubted. People have very selective views of suffering. Now, that suffering's allowable because of this and that one's not because of that. Well, a Christian person has to have a much more significant engagement with the nature of suffering. And the point of the gospel is it does, immediately deals with suffering. People who say to you that God hasn't got an answer to suffering are misleading you. There's no answer to suffering? Of course there is. We sung about it this morning. It's called nails and cross and blood and excrement and tears. It's called prayers and faith. It's called the sun come into our world. It's called resurrection. That's, that's the answer to suffering. And in our history of Christians, some of the people who've suffered the most have seen the most glory. Stephen uh, kneeling as the rocks coming down upon him saying, I see the heavens open and the Son of God standing at the right hand of the Father. Uh, when you and I would think our life was at its very worst and the idea of stoning someone is just terrifying, isn't it? Imagine it. And I had rock fights when I was a kid. I could throw them back and hide. It's a terrifying thought. But Stephen, in that circumstance, the most powerless circumstance of see glory, see glory. I don't, I don't withdraw from what I've been preaching at all. I've arrived at what faith only into that. Um, so, so this this understanding of suffering and also suffering in the in the wider world. The Bible speaks to that and, and Paul specifically says, when I preached to you, I preached to you about the necessity of the suffering of Christ. Clearly, Paul had a theology of suffering, yeah? And clearly he taught it to the Thessalonians and clearly he's enforcing it with the Thessalonians. The tempter will come and unsettle your faith. And your faith is founded on faith, hope and love on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not founded on your personal experience today or tomorrow or the next day or the past those things of course will impact upon you that's why Paul's are so anxious he knows that you're not immune to them but the battle is to stand firm in faith until that day and that's why each one of the sections of Thessalonians finishes with having been so well taught by GT you know to say the return of Jesus Christ Every time, the return of Jesus Christ, because the answer to the nature of suffering is exaltation and victory, friends. It's not to remain in suffering, nor to remove from suffering, not, not abnegation, but engagement and victory, which is why we're Christian and not Buddhist. Uh, blessings be upon Buddhists, and I don't mean that. I mean, there's one way to deal with suffering, but it's not the Lord Jesus way demonstrated from the heavens now therefore if doubt introducing doubt unsettles us Paul says uh, I, I want you not to be unsettled and he has that wonderful little play there where he says uh, you know quite well that we taught you and then he experienced and you know quite well he says we told you and you know now you know but the having known beforehand and the now knowing don't stop the trajectory of the believing only if the faith is cut out. So, friends, I have to say to you, he taught them this and re-instructed. It is a terrible thing not to teach a Christian person that you will suffer for Christ as Christ suffered. Uh, in the first three weeks of a person becoming Christian, they should be told the name, the nature and the function of the evil one. 
they should have explained to them the fact that you will suffer and how you should act accordingly. Uh, what you should do about that. Uh, what, what it means, how to proceed with it. How not to panic. Precisely because if you're told, as I know happens in some churches, although I love, I love to see modern Hillsong songs, they've come a long way in 20 years theologically and, and otherwise. The idea of them having a creedal song 20 years ago was outrageous. But they're moving back towards uh, scripture and the function of Jesus in all his fullness, not just his, you're going to win a prize. Everybody gets a prize, but the prize being uh, faithful endurance to the end. But there are churches in my area of uh, life where a kid becomes a Christian and they say, you're, you're a princess in the gospel and you're going to be such a blessing. The Lord's going to use you so much. Now, these are all things, these things are all true, but what if when you find yourself having sex with your boyfriend and you get pregnant, you know, and it happens, then what? Then what? Well, you, we told you all these things. Uh, you've moved away from the gospel so far, we've got nothing to tell you. We've got no news for you. You're gone. And in often, often cases, they are gone, never to come back. What if you were told... We understand that Satan is tempting all the time, trying to undermine your faith. He's active. And you, and you need to live a certain way, and that's where he talks to them about. We pray for the God. I'm going to finish soon. I'm not going to preach on that bit. But uh, towards the bit, he says, that we pray for you to be holy and blameless at the coming of that day. We want you to be holy, but stuff goes wrong. Stuff goes wrong. What happens then? He keeps making things right. He keeps doing that. He keeps taking... The darkness and bring it into light. He keeps taking broken people and healing them. He, he keeps on giving us the power to pray for you day and night that you will not be tempted. But should you be tempted, then you, the gospel doesn't stop or cease to be the same gospel that came. And we've learned about temptation and failure and restoration, both in the beginning and the end. But what we're praying for is that you won't be tempted. We're praying against him, and he says, so we pray day and night. Here's my last point. Uh, the answer to all of this, therefore, is to pray, isn't it? Is to get in the face of God and ask him to get in your face. Because praying is, is talking with God. Not only talking with God, though, it's taking hold of a promise, is it not? It's not just a conversation like you and I might have. It's entering into the capacity to kneel at the cross and then to stand up in his holy presence and to engage with him, not just to stay down, but stand up and then to walk with him back into the world. That's what prayer is, working through those things and being honest about yourself. Paul says, we prayed night and day. So here's the finishing point. Does that mean that if you guys are going to be able to walk unhindered, to walk holy, not to fall, uh, to engage with something, you've got to pray day and night, that you've got to put a prayer chain in action so there's always two people in there calling out to God? Well, you might try it. Might, wouldn't, mightn't be the stupidest thing you've ever done, but that's not what's being taught here. Because remember, back to where we started, Paul's saying to these people, I love you so much. And they're saying, they're saying, I'm not there because I don't care, but I do. I long for you. I long. I am praying day and night to be with you. Day and night to be with you. Not because I think it's like, uh, it's like God's mum and I'm the kid in the shop can I have a lolly? Nah. Can I have a lolly? Nah. Can I have a lolly? Nah. I want a lolly. No. Give me a lolly. All right. 
That's the way to pray. 24 hours at him the whole time. <laughs> Even the Lord Jesus Christ could not sustain such suffering. <laughs> That's not what being taught, is it? What he's saying is, I, I can't stop praying for you. You know, um, uh, when you first met the person you wanted to marry, you thought about him all the time. When you had a kid, first kid, you think about him all the time. Especially if they're sick or there's something wrong, you think about them all the time. You wake up, you think about them. Get in the car, you think about them. You think about them all the time, 24 hours a day. And Paul's saying that's how much. But he's not teaching that's how to pray. The Lord Jesus Christ did say prayer and fasting. But Jesus uh, did other things than pray and fast, did he not? People who are praying and fasting are not all that functional at getting on boats and crossing or, or Paul can't work at night. He's, it's not, that's not what was being taught. What's being taught is to have such a longing for the spiritual thing that it captures you, captures your heart. And, and the longing here is that the, the evil one is not to block. If, we, if we're being blocked, we're going to push beyond that. We're going to make gospel plans and we'll pursue them. But if they're hindered, we'll push beyond them. And we'll pray about them because we want the gospel to be founded in every place. We won't give up that fight. Also, we're going to understand that the evil one will, tr will try and tempt us. That's his work until that day when Jesus comes and we stand in his presence. There is that conflict. So we're going to pray that you won't be tempted. We're going to teach so you won't be tempted. We're going to give foundations of faith that are strong and broad and deep so you won't be tempted. And lastly, we're going to pray. We're going to, we care about this so much that, that probably we're so compelled by it, we're going to pray day and night. Last point on prayer. State your case, state it plainly and leave it with God. State your case, state it plainly and leave it with God. Let's do that. Now, Heavenly Father, uh, uh, our first confession is that um, our hearts are such that we, that we don't pray 24 hours a day for gospel concerns. Here in Robertson, someone we know who doesn't know you is sick or uh, all sorts of examples. You, you know what they are. So be merciful to our, our, uh, our half-empty, half-full hearts. Fill them up, Lord, we pray. Um, our case is that we want to be firm in the gospel. And we want to pursue that gospel here in Robertson and in New South Wales and in our Australia and across the world uh, knowing that suffering is no indicator of how things are going one way or the other, but that we ought to expect it if we're speaking the truth. Uh, Lord, give us courage in that circumstance. We pray that we won't confuse suffering for the gospel for, with suffering for being an idiot. Um, give us that wisdom. And we pray a special blessing on the church here in Robertson. Thank you for the gospel work that's been here for so long and for faithful people and for wonderful outcomes. We pray that that blessing would continue, that you'd uh, put on the heart of people here to keep working, keep working at love and working at faith, even when things are difficult. And we pray against the evil one, his lies and his misleadings. Uh, we oppose him here and we pray for your blessing to continue, Lord. Amen.